Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves podcast. Today I have on the show an expert on emotions. I'm so excited about this because this is her jam. She's a master researcher, communicator, all the things on emotion. If you've been on the podcast before, you know that I talk about we should be taught this stuff in school. Like if you're new, this is it, right? Like this is the stuff that matters most. And we are emotional beings. And we, the way that we interact with our emotions is based on what was modeled for us till we learn something differently. And so you can learn something differently. You can learn how to relate to your feelings in a completely different way. But it does involve learning new things and in turn sort of unlearning what was previously taught. And that's done by acknowledging what we were taught, separating what we were taught from what is right, what feels good, what is connective rather than disconnective, what emotions and how we engage in them in order to protect ourselves. You know, and this involves the excavating of looking at what were some of the explicit and implicit things I was taught as a kid about feelings. And we learn them through our culture, through our media, through our families, through our schools, through our religions. And so start to ask yourself questions like, oh, did, did we fight in my family? Did I watch conflict get navigated in a healthy way? Was there no conflict? Which some people say like, oh yeah, we didn't fight in my house. It was great. That's not great because it's, it's not an absence of conflict that's healthy. It's how can, conflict is navigated that matters. We, you know, conflict is essential because we have two different worlds or many more than two in family systems and communities bumping up against each other. And how do we navigate those things where we find unity, compromise, a way forward? And that's what healthy communication does. But emotion provides us with information. And so we might ask, like, how was anger expressed? How was joy expressed? How was sadness expressed? Were there space for any of these feelings? Were there only space for a few? Did I suppress my feelings? Did I overtly express them? Did I use aggression instead of, because anger is healthy, and, but it's clean anger. 
what we associate with anger is aggression. And often what we learn as kids is we see aggression, so we're so afraid of our anger and or we see that our aggression gets us significance or that sadness gets us connection, right? And so it's just important that we explore our web, right, of how we work and how emotions work within us and what we do with them. We're going to learn all about that today. And I'm so excited to share this episode with you with Dr. Susan David, who is incredible. She's, I I just can't wait for you to hear her speak. Plus, she says everything with a South African accent, which makes everything sound immensely cooler and smarter. Um, But before we begin, please, wherever you listen to this, give it a five-star review and a written review, and, and please subscribe to it so you don't miss any episodes. And we have some, we have some, some real hot ones coming up too. Without further ado, here is Susan David. Today I have Susan David, who is a psychologist at the Harvard Medical School and also author, researcher, author on emotional agility and a researcher on emotions, which first off, welcome. I'm so excited to chat with you. Me too. Um, emotions. I mean, this is the juice. This is everything. So I'm like, what a beautiful area of research to be doing to help all of us so that we can navigate the complexities of what it means to be a person, a human. I absolutely love the field that I work in. And it's just so interesting because when I first started studying it, it was very difficult to get any cognizance of the idea that emotions are critical because of course they're difficult to measure. But as we know, our emotions drive everything, you know, how we come to our lives, our relationships, our careers, and of course, our mental health. So I'm excited to be with you. Well, you know, as you say that, I sort of think about how often we don't see our our emotions. You know, we're like, I shouldn't feel this way or that we don't like the emotions we're feeling. And so, you know, we have all sorts of strategies as humans to not feel things. But, you know, that seems to be one of the biggest challenges for us is to actually you know, we're sort of like socialized to think that, why are you not happy? Why are you not in positive emotions, as we call them? Um, But there's so much more to it, you know? Yes. And that's been the key focus of my work, which is really these narratives that exist in society about positivity or about, you know, we've got to be happy all the time. And we see this trickle down into the way we parent, the way we come to our relationships. And this narrative is so unhealthy in so many ways. And I mean this both individually, but even in terms of the conversations that we have in society and our culture, the conversations that we need to have today. It's only when we get better at being with the full range of our emotions that we are able to access greater levels of wholeness and well-being. Well, I was recently watching your TED Talk on emotional agility. And you, you had a line that I was like, whoa, that is fire, which was discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. And I don't know, you know, when you said it, I was just like, yeah, I wanted to be in the audience giving you a standing ovation. Um, just how, but how foreign that is, you know, we avoid discomfort, not recognizing that discomfort is so meaningful in, in a lot of ways. It is. It's It's often people will say things like, you know, I don't want to be stressed or I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to experience sadness. Um, but really, these emotions are essential to our growth and our well-being. You know, no change ever happened in society without anger. 
no growth as an individual ever happened without stepping into the space of discomfort. I often think of grief. You know, grief is love looking for a home. Grief has an intimate relationship with love. And if we love, then we get to grieve. And if we grieve, then it means we have loved. And there's something so extraordinarily mm. powerful about this. And yet, everywhere we go, you know, on social media and beyond seems to tell us the opposite, you know, seems to conspire against the idea that our emotions, all of them, are beautiful. And so really that line of my TED Talk is really this idea that often people say things like, you know, I don't want to be stressed or I don't want to have my heart broken. And what I describe in that TED Talk is that, you know, only dead people never have their hearts broken. You know, only dead people <laughs> never have the disappointment that comes with failure. We don't mm. get to have a meaningful career or raise a family, leave the world a better place, or engage in a meaningful relationship without stress and discomfort. So that's where I said, you know, discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. When, and it, as you're saying right here, it's the evidence that we're alive. It's the evidence that we're trying. It's the evidence that we're courageous. It's the evidence that your heart is, that you're actually brave in this world for so many reasons. You can close down, you can shut off. But to experience things like I went through a breakup last year and I've spoken so much to exactly what you're saying that the grief actually was just, for me, it was so grounding because it demanded to be felt. And I just kept marinating in the beauty of it being the evidence that I experienced great love. And, and it's such a different, it was, I would never have had that perspective at 19, let me tell you, but. Oh, I, and I actually have body chills as you say that, because it's, it's exactly, it's exactly that, you know, yes, we can go through our lives in which we, you know, cut off toxic people or where we, ghost people or we we push it you know and what are we doing we basically are shrinking 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 ourselves and the opposite is being wholehearted and being wholehearted is recognizing this intimate relationship that exists between our beauty and our fragility our love and our loss and when we open ourselves to that intimate relationship we become healthier people and we become healthier partners. Mm, that that line between love and loss. You know, I, I often think about how when you are entering love, like when you are entering a new relationship or friendship, it doesn't really matter. But I think with love, it's just, uh, there's always, it feels like there is always so much more on the line. When we're entering that relationship, we're sort of like literally also taking on as we're opening to them, taking on what it would be like to lose them. You know, at the same yeah. time, both yes. both things exist. And I find if, if you're not conscious of that, uh, because it exists, whether you're aware of it or not, but if you're not aware of it, it can cause us to not allow ourselves to be open into love. Yeah, we, we brokering, when we broker a relationship with love, we are brokering a relationship with life, which is that, mm-hmm. you know, we are alive until we are not, that you know, tough emotions are part of our contract with life. And I think, again, you know, there's this idea that is really undermining of all of that, this idea that we should be positive all the time. Um, And I think what that evokes actually is greater levels of fragility and 
a lower capacity to actually be healthy in the world. What do you mean by that? Do you mean like because we don't allow ourselves in that range and that depth, we like we don't allow because we don't, we're sort of like swimming in the shallows? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, tough emotions are part of our contract with life. We mm-hmm. we are healthy until we are not. We are wanted and in a project that's going well at work until it's not. We we nag our children and then there's silence where that child once was. You know, tough emotions mm-hmm. are part of our contract with life. And yet, when we push aside those difficult emotions in the service of forced positivity, when we say to ourselves, oh, you know, I need to be happy all the time, then what we actually do is we make ourselves more fragile because we now are no no longer living in the world as it is. We're living in the world as we wish it to be. The world Mm -hmm. as it is is a world that is imperfect and it's a world that is messy. And so I think that a very big part of being healthy with ourselves as human beings is um, when we feel tough emotions, when we we feel difficulty is not racing for the exits, but mm. rather kind of showing up to our difficult emotions with, you know, curiosity and compassion and learning skills that help us to be more capacious as human beings. And so really what I mean is that when we only, you know, allow ourselves to, to speak into this idea of being positive all the time, when we have this idea that we've got to be positive and happy all the time, then actually we're not developing the skills to deal with the world as it is, which is both fragile and beautiful. And therefore there's a narrowing and the narrowing is both a psychological narrowing. We know that, 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 you know, if we become overly focused on, you know, there being good and bad emotions and I want to feel the good emotions Actually, what it does is it leads to lower levels of mental health, lower psychological resilience. You find greater levels of well of of depression in those kinds of contexts because people often haven't then developed the skills to deal with their difficult emotions. But we also know that it impacts on our relationships. You know, what is what is being capacious in a relationship. It's being able to go to the difficult conversation. It's being able to go to the discomfort. It's about being able to move through that with another human being and come out stronger. And so what I mean at a kind of meta level is when we obey this idea that society would often have us believe that we need to be positive all the time, Actually, what it does is it doesn't make us positive. It actually shrinks our capacity to be effective with ourselves in our relationships and be whole in the world. Yeah, it disconnects us from reality. I mean, we end up living in this parallel world where everything's fluffy and it's not, you know, like everything's great. And it's like, but everything's not great. And that I think when we can actually hold that truth, you know, everything's not great. I'm not actually happy. I do have anger. My childhood wasn't magic all the time that we or this relationship isn't what I've wanted. Um, Just like which doesn't mean, you know, I think then, as you were saying, like if our capacity to even navigate that feeling is low, we might run from the relationship or we might run from, you know, the the opportunity to make it to a different level. You know, and I I think that both for ourselves 
like we continue to sort of expand our own humanness, our own capacity, which then also invites the capacity of a relationship container to expand too, which is, a, I mean, all of this is a beautiful opportunity to continue to learn. And, you know, I, I don't think we were really socialized to see relationships as learning opportunities. We were seeing, you know, we're, we're supposed to just fall in love and everything's great. And Disney sort of taught us that that's how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's so, you know, as you're talking, I just think about the capaciousness of us as human beings, you know, human beings create poetry and art and beauty and songs and lyrics. And, you know, all of that is the, the, the marrow of life. It's the mm. marrow of the gorgeousness and the fragility and the, the sadness and the joy. And it's all together. But what does that mean for us as human beings in practical terms? What it means in practical terms is that when we feel difficult emotions, if we just push them aside or if we try to run away from them or if we don't open ourselves with curiosity and learning and grace to those difficult emotions, then we become very unidimensional. Mm -hmm. And and I think that when we, again, when we think about our relationships, but also when we think about our capacity as humans, it's it's expanding into the, the nuance, which is that emotions are not good or bad. Emotions have a function. Emotions signal things that are important to us. And emotions actually help us to thrive as human beings. And there's profound beauty in that. So what does, how does one end up becoming an emotions researcher then? Because I find that's really like, as you said, they're hard to measure. So you didn't, you know, you didn't go into one that's, you know, easily quantifiable. Um, <laughs> so I'm really, I'm really curious as to like what fed this passion, because it's obvious in the way you're speaking. I mean, you're speaking in with poetry, you know, that there's a lot of passion in what you do. And so I, I'd love to know a little more about that. Well, I'll give you the academic version, but before then, <laughs> I'll give you the, the human version, which is, as I mentioned in my TED Talk, I grew up as a white South African in apartheid South Africa, and it was very much a country and a community that was committed to not seeing the other, to denial. You know, it's denial that makes racist legislation possible while people convince themselves that they are doing nothing wrong. Uh, and I see those strands of denial both at large, you know, in the conversations that we're having across the world, but we also embody that denial when we, you know, cut people off as good or bad, as toxic or not. You know, they're, they're these very kind of quick labels that we often ascribe, which are basically about not seeing. So mm. I grew up in that community, but then when I was around uh, 15 years old, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I recall my mother coming and telling me to say goodbye to him. And I was little, you know, I put my backpack down and I still to the stair recall going and, and walking the passage in my home to where my father lay dying of cancer. And my father was someone who had always seen me. He had always seen me and he had always um, really engaged with me in the way that I'm describing. I remember many years before my dad died, I remember being scared that one day he was going to die. At that, at that point, he hadn't been diagnosed with cancer. Like I was just a five-year-old that had become aware of my own mortality. And I recall having a conversation with my father 
one night when I found my way into my parents' bed and I said to my father, you know, promise me you'll never die. Promise me you'll never die. And I remember being this little child saying this to him. And my father could have said to me, don't worry, like I'm going to be around. Everything's going to be okay. He could have buffered me with forced, toxic, false positivity, but he didn't. He hugged me and he kissed me and he said to me, we all die. It's normal to be scared which is very different. It's, again, the contagiousness of experience. And so, you know, how did I come to this? I just, after being seen by my father, but then experiencing in the aftermath of his death, people saying things to me like, oh, you're doing so well, you're doing so well, it's okay, everything happens for a reason. I remember people saying to my brother, oh, you've got to look after your family because now they need you. And There was really no space for our grief. I became the master of being okay. And then, you know, this this pivotal experience for me was an English teacher handing out blank notebooks to the class with an invitation. And she said, write, tell the truth, write like no one is reading. And it was that moment of basically starting to journal And then the aftermath of it, recognizing that it wasn't the pretending I was okay that had helped me to be resilient, it was actually that process of journaling and coming to insight and understanding. And so how did I become an emotions researcher? I became an emotions researcher because I was fed a narrative by society, which was everything happens for a reason, toxic positivity, you'll be all right. And recognizing that that narrative was actually making me unhealthy, it was Um, engaging me in uh, denial and in a downward spiral. And it was only when I started to show up to my grief and my pain in a way that was honest and authentic and um, vulnerable and compassionate towards myself that I actually started to garner a sense of strength. And so I started to become really interested in what are the narratives that we have around emotions in our society And in what ways do they actually make us less healthy and less whole as human beings? Um, And in what ways do they make our communities less healthy and less whole? So that's how I became an emotions researcher. The rest Mm -hmm. of it happens at at Harvard and in other places, but that is the seed of my work. That's beautiful. I mean, when it comes from, you know, this desire, I, I think a lot of, like for myself, my work is born from, uh, this idea of like, I went and learned the things I needed to learn and then saw other people weren't learning them generally. And you know, that we become the teacher we needed that, you know, we turn our, our mess into our message. And I, it's a, I, I'm curious as to what point did you have the awareness that the way out was the access to the grief in the journal? Like when did the, the pieces sort of come together for you that there you were on to something? Well, for me as a, as a young child, it came through this process of, of journaling. And it was this beautiful experience. I've still got this journal oh, where wow. I would write in this journal and I would hand it into this English teacher who had invited us to keep these journals. And she was really very beautiful. She would respond to the things that I'd written always in pencil as if she was being very tentative in the way that she was responding and she was basically saying, I'm here, but I'm not defining your experience. And 
what I realized is that after this process of journaling, that I recognized a couple of things. The first is that I did have regrets and that there was something very human and normal and beautiful to acknowledge those regrets and and that that's powerful. But the other thing that started to happen is I started to generate a sense of insight into what I was writing. So I would say things like, you know, I regret not having done this, but I also have a sense of why I made that choice at the time. So you're starting to generate a sense of insight. And then many years later, I, when I was starting to study psychology, became aware of work on what's called expressive writing. And it's basically this idea that, you know, on the one hand, we had people saying, oh, when you're angry, go punch a pillow and you'll feel okay. But on the other hand, there were these researchers who were saying, oh, no, 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 don't punch a pillow, actually face into what's going on, write it down and let's understand what's happening. And so there was this beautiful body of research that basically started to look at when people have gone through traumatic or difficult experiences, it could be a breakup, it could be um, a loss early in their life, or it could even be something difficult um, but exciting that you're facing. You know, I'm, I've, I'm writing a book or I'm going into this new job, that when people spent a little bit of time actually writing what it was that they were experiencing, that you often found that there was a an association later that was those people who had written about those difficult experiences had greater levels of psychological health and well-being, even lower levels of physical symptoms. And what this started mm-hmm. to point to was this really profound importance in showing up to ourselves and showing up to our emotions with compassion and curiosity and courage. Yeah, well, so by taking the the experience or what you might be fearing or what might have happened and putting it on a page and writing out in your own words what that might look like or feel like and what's making you anxious or whatever, by getting it out there, it in some way calms the self, like bring it, it's, is it, it almost like grounds the self in the reality of the experience. It's starting to ground the self and it's starting to help you generate a sense of insight. So for instance, when people do this, these kind of writing experiments and you can actually start looking at like what kind of positive emotion words do they use? Uh, what kind of so-called negative emotion words do they use? What kind of, you know, you can actually start counting linguistically what it is that they're mm-hmm. using. And what you can start realizing is that people who go through difficult experiences and who move beyond those experiences in successful, resilient ways have a couple of hallmarks to their writing. And that is that they don't get completely stuck in the negative. They definitely start using positive emotion words, but they also don't Pollyanna their experience. They don't say things like, oh, it was all for a reason. Oh, it was, you know, they are able to recognize the nuance, the thing that we spoke about earlier of, both the, you know, joys and the heartache. And of course, when you go through a difficult relationship or a breakup, it's like being able to be integrated in that way where you are both able to say this was the joy and this was the heartache and they are part of the same package. Uh, It's very powerful. And then the other thing that we start to see in this writing is people who start to use greater levels of insight words. So this is the person who starts to say, one thing I learned, one thing that I 
um, acknowledge about my experience. I didn't ask for this trauma, but one thing that I've understood about myself as a result of this is that that these are some of the hallmarks of um, integration and and well-being and resilience. So there's a beginning of a recognition of of how they've been invited or expanded through that yes, experience. Yes, and Ooh. I'm being much more nerdy that's with you juicy. than I ever am. I hope that's helpful. But yeah, oh, that, I that, love that's it. The nerd, the nerd part of me. Well, I th- you know, for me, I mean, I love research, and and for me to be able to take something like we're stuck in a breakup or a trauma or or something, and to know that actually by by walk, walking through the story, by by paying attention to your linguistics, paying attention to your words. Of course, I forget. I think it's David Cooper Ryder who says that words become our world. You know, and and they are so important. I have a friend who's so particular about language, and when I didn't understand the importance of language, I used to get annoyed by him. But then, as I dove into the importance of the words we choose, you start to see that, um, as you said, the Pollyanna sort of overt positivity is not grounding. It's not you can't trust someone who's overtly positive either because it it feels so contrived. You know what I mean? Yeah, you can't. Well, you can't trust them. But you also, if you are trying to do that in yourself, what are you basically doing? You are basically gaslighting yourself. You know, <laughs> right. if you're feeling difficult you're narcissistic emotions, gaslighting yourself, it's awful. Well, if you're feeling <laughs> difficult emotions, if you're feeling struggle, if you're feeling lonely or lost or grieving, and you basically start saying to yourself, you know, those emotions are invalid or I shouldn't feel them or I'm unhappy in my job, but at least I've got a job or I should be grateful. You know, basically what you're doing is you are gaslighting yourself and Mm. you aren't showing up to your own pain. You aren't having your own back. And I think it's really important for us to have our own back and to show up to ourselves. And one of the ways that we do this is by ending the struggle with how we think we should feel about something. And instead, opening our hearts up to how we do feel. And sometimes, in my case, writing it down. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I, I think in being able to, how you said that, that going from I shouldn't feel this way to I do, now what? Now yes. what? You know? So now what? Now what? And and I can share some strategies that are helpful. But, you know, I sometimes think about this as as almost like, You've probably had that experience where you've been in a restaurant and you see this little child who's decided to go off and explore the restaurant. And it's the most beautiful thing because you'll often see the little toddler like racing off and then turning back and seeing his or her parents or caregiver there at the table. And then what does the child do? They gleefully go and explore more. And then they turn back to see that the caregiver is still there. And then what do they do? They gleefully go and explore more. And what is really happening there is the child is recognizing that they've got a safe base. The child is recognizing that if something goes wrong, that the caregiver is going to be there to help them. And it's that recognition that allows the child to explore, to take risks, to learn, to grow. And the same is true for ourselves that when we have our own backs, when we are experiencing something difficult, but we come to that difficulty not by gaslighting ourselves, but with compassion and saying, this is really difficult. Like it's tough to have your heart broken or 
it's tough to be in a situation where you feel like you don't really trust yourself or the other person. And like, this is tough. Instead of trying to persuade yourself that you should feel or trust or do whatever it is. So showing up to yourself in that way that's like really compassionate, what it does is it allows you to know that you've got your own back. And it's that that then allows you to explore, to grow, to learn and create. But it's often derived from a sense of firstly doing away with the idea of there being good and bad emotions and secondly entering into yourself from a place of compassion. Which might be the first time you've ever experienced that for yourself, you know. You might be the first one to actually, you know, because societally we're not necessarily socialized as well to be grounded in that, to be to be compassionate to our feelings, and and same with maybe our families, maybe our communities, maybe our religions. You know, they're also synonymous, yeah. really. Yeah, we. I think we grounded into, particularly nowadays, we grounded into the opposite. We grounded into hustling. We grounded into a kind of unidimensional us and them way of being. Uh, we are very often kind of grounded into, even in the context of a pandemic, you know, this idea of like, what are you going to create? Like, are you going to write your next script? You know, it's, it's, it's the opposite of self-compassion. And so what then happens is we often associate being kind to ourselves as somehow being dishonest or letting ourselves mm. cook or being unmotivated. But actually what's, what's really powerful is we know that people who are self-compassionate are more honest with themselves, are more motivated, uh -huh. because you know that if you try something and you don't succeed, you're going to have your own back. You're still going to love yourself. And that then allows you to be more honest and to try harder or to take more risks. You are the child in that restaurant, but but rather in this case, you are the child in your own life looking, looking back and saying, Susie, I'm exploring, but Susie, you've also got me. Yeah. Do you got me? And I, I love that. There's so much beauty to the idea that when you step into accepting the totality of who you are and how you feel and in your world, you actually are more resilient. You are more compassionate. You are. So if you're listening to this and you're like, wait, so I win if I'm open to the totality of myself and all my feelings. Yes, you win. Like you win. You win. That, you that win. should be the motivation. You know? yeah. What a motivation and that is. And, and actually, I would say the opposite. There's really fascinating, because I'm doing the nerd thing, um, there's actually <laughs> really fascinating research showing that people who overvalue happiness, who overvalue the idea of, I've got to be happy. Why aren't I happy? Why aren't I in this relationship? Being happy in this relationship all the time. People who overvalue happiness actually become less happy over time. And they have... Um, you know, as I've already mentioned, lower levels of resilience. And often what they're doing is they are experiencing difficult emotions, but then what they do with those difficult emotions is they often engage in what I call bottling, where they push them aside and they say, I shouldn't feel this. They second guess themselves. And, um, what does that do? It leaves you in a situation where, you know, I'll give you, I know your relationship is, is, oh, I know your podcast is relationship focused, but, the, a great example of this is someone who says, I'm unhappy in my job, but at least I've got a job. And then five years later, they've been pushing aside 
the fact that they're unhappy in their job, but at least they've got a job and they're still in the same miserable job. There's such power in being able to say, gee, what's going on for me? What is it that I'm feeling here? How can I show up to these difficult feelings with compassion? And when you do this, you're not pushing those difficult emotions aside, rather the you're learning from them. And this is what our emotions are for. Our emotions mm. evolve to help us to adapt. That is what our emotions are for. And the world is changing and our relationships are changing and we are changing. And so when you feel emotion, those emotions are helping you to adapt and thrive in life, in a life that is complex and real and human. Well, I'm curious, uh, because of uh, the stress and the emotions that people are experiencing from uh, the pandemic and being in lockdowns and all those types of things, depending where the listener is, wherever you are listening to this and what your your world is like, and also how technology correlates to our ability to feel and and what that does. Like, do we stay more in the shallows? Because I find that if I'm looking at my phone or Instagram or something like that, I actually am in a lot of ways running from presence and a feeling. Uh, I've been really mindful of that. So I'm wondering, is there any data or research to, that looks at that or, or, or maybe loosely? Such such an interesting question. You know, often when people have difficult emotions, they often engage in, in one of two less helpful strategies with those emotions. And I'll play these out to you. They both look very different, but actually the result is the same. So the first is this this bottling, which is pushing emotions aside. And often when people bottle emotions, they often engage in other ways to almost help them manage the emotions, but they all are hallmarked by the fact that it's avoidant. So mm. going on social media, getting lost on Netflix, procrastination, of course, in its most extreme, alcohol, you know, oversleeping, like these are all ways that we can deal with our difficult emotion, but that are not helpful because the situation in its reality is not being dealt with. You know, we're just, we're just tinkering at the sides and around everything, and it's basically a fundamentally avoidant strategy. Um, the other way we often deal with our difficult emotions is we do what I call brooding. Brooding is when we get so stuck in our difficult emotion that it colors everything. Oh my goodness, I feel what I feel. This is terrible. This is awful. You know, I've been so wronged. And if you kind of imagine metaphorically what this could look like, it's almost like bottling is you've got these emotions and these emotions, it's this heavy um, box of books that you are carrying. And bottling is where you try to hold the books away from you as far away as you can, you know, yeah. and over time, your arms hurt and your heart hurts and your feet hurt and you drop the books. And the other, which is brooding, is that you are so immersed, you're holding that box of books so tightly to you that your arms are hurting and your heart is hurting and your feet are hurting and ultimately you drop the books. Now, what is the cost? The cost is that both of these ways of being are associated with lower levels of well-being, um, more difficulty in relationships. You know, you either, when you're pushing aside difficult emotions, are 
not able to be vulnerable with others. Therefore, you're not able to enter into a space of vulnerability. You are, you know, avoiding difficult conversations. And so you are, again, establishing this unidimensional way of being. Um, but when you're brooding, you're so focused on how you feel and and what's going on for you that you aren't looking the other person in the eye, you aren't engaging mm. in what's going on for them. So interestingly, both bottling and brooding look so different, and yet there's a real cost in terms of our well-being, our relationships, and our ability to be present in the now. And this is where my work on emotional agility comes in, which is really saying, like, what is the third way? The third way is being healthy with our emotions, which is about showing up to them with compassion, but also recognizing that there are data not directives. And and this data is where some of the data not directives. And this is where it's helpful. I can talk about some strategies. Yeah, yeah. Helpful. I'm sure everyone listening is like, don't just leave us with the info. This don't has been fun. And, data not directives. Susan has a beautiful accent, but we need some strategies. Okay, so the first set of strategies is is what I've already mentioned, which is the compassion. But what does that really look like? If you're struggling, imagine the five-year-old you, you know, the hurt mark coming and saying, like, I'm hurt, I'm hurt. The first thing you would not do to that hurting five-year-old is to tell them that they were stupid or that they, you know, lack judgment. The first thing that you would do to that hurting child is you would take the child in your arms and you would love them. And so for anyone who's hurting right now or even experiencing tough emotions, just recognize that being in a pandemic or being in grief or being in a relationship breakup is tough and there's a child inside of you that's hurting and that needs to be loved. And so just loving yourself and asking yourself, what does the five-year-old in me need right now is extremely powerful. A second part of this is, again, seeing if you can do away with narratives about what you should or shouldn't feel. This is what you do feel. But now for some, you know, really this idea of data, not directives, what do I really mean here? You know, our emotions are signposts to the things that we care about. When you feel grief, that grief is a signpost of love looking for its home. When you feel loneliness, loneliness is a signpost that you maybe value intimacy and connection, and that even while you're physically distancing, we should maybe not be emotionally distancing. Boredom might be a signpost that you value learning and growth, and that even though you're with a partner in your relationship, that you feel bored and you need more learning and growth in that relationship. So... Emotions are data. If you have a piece of paper, an imaginary piece of paper, where you're writing this emotion on the one side of the piece of paper, see if you can flip that piece of paper over and instead of doing a Pollyanna and trying to be positive about that emotion, ask yourself a different question. Ask yourself, what is the need or what is the value that this emotion is pointing to and that I could start moving towards more in my life. And so this is what I mean by emotions are data. But our emotions are not directives. Just because I feel upset doesn't mean I need to now ghost this person. 
just because I feel undermined doesn't mean I need to leave the room. Just because I feel stressed doesn't mean I need to bring my cell phone to the dinner table or when my partner reaches out with love, instead be looking at my telephone. Mm -hmm. So our emotions are data, not directives. So what we're trying to do with our emotions is we're trying to show up to them with compassion, but to not let them call the shots. Because who should be calling the shots? We should be. And what I mean by we is the part of us that's wise, the part of us that's grounded and centered, our values, our intentions, and who we want to be in the world. And so there are ways that we can start creating that space between us and our emotions so that we, rather than our emotions, are calling the shots. Because, of course, we own our emotions. They don't own us. What a different perspective of seeing that. You know, I love that. So powerful, I think, can well, it can be so powerful for people. And I think, you know, there are ways that we can do this. I mean, they're very practical ways. So one example is if you're feeling a tough emotion right now, you can do this example with a piece of paper, but here's some other ways that you can navigate that. Uh, the first is often we use umbrella labels to describe what it is we're feeling. So people will say things like, I'm stressed. You know, that's the example I used in my TED Talk. I'm stressed is the most common one I hear. But if you think about it, that is an umbrella term. I'm stressed could actually mean I feel overwhelmed. I'm depleted. I'm in the wrong relationship. This relationship is going nowhere. I need support. So when you use a very big label to describe what it is you're feeling, it doesn't actually enable you as a human to step into your own values and your needs because that big emotion is kind of masking everything. Mm -hmm. So what I would invite people to do is if you're finding yourself using a big umbrella term is to try get more granular with that emotion. This in psychological, aka nerd terms, is called <laughs> emotion granularity. Emotion granularity is when you, instead of saying, oh, I feel this very big emotion, you start saying, what else is underneath that emotion? What are two other examples of what I'm feeling? And what we know is that when people use more granular emotions to describe what it is they're feeling, there's something extraordinarily powerful that happens. What it actually does is it literally helps us to begin to understand the cause of that emotion and also what is called the readiness potential in our brains is activated, which starts allowing us to take concrete steps. So, you know, it, and, and I can give you, you know, the example is if you go from I'm stressed into actually I'm lonely, you can already feel in the labeling of that emotion that there's a, a an erring and an urge to reach out that starts to happen there. Yeah. Or someone who says, I'm stressed, and actually I'm stressed is I'm depleted, already that starts to signal to the person care, self-care, nurturance, 
And what this starts to enable us to do is to move in the direction of that thing that we value. That's beautiful. I, I think of that. As, so the granularity connects you to the actual need in some way. Correct. Correct. Mm. Correct. Psychologically, as well as in action, as mm. well as in action. It isn't the full story. Of course, like sometimes we need to make, you know, we need to make small changes in our lives to bring us closer. You know, so for instance, again, if I'm going to play through an example, I'm stressed becomes actually I'm lonely and I'm living in the same house as this person because we in quarantine, but I'm still mm-hmm. lonely because you can be lonely in a relationship. You know, oh, you're yeah. not only lonely to break up, you can be lonely in a relationship. And so that loneliness can signal to you that you've got a need for intimacy and connection. And then you can be saying to yourself, well, what are ways, what are some tiny tweaks if this relationship actually has at its core something that is important to me here, what are some tiny tweaks that I can create in this relationship that garner more intimacy and connection? So a tiny tweak can be the small shift where as you enter the kitchen together, you actually put down your phone and you open your heart for a real hug. And Mm. it's that small moment in the relationship, but where you are saying to the person, I'm here. A tiny tweak can be expanding the breadth of our conversation, where we're having a conversation with our partner about things that we don't often talk about, you know, that, that, you know, it might be a book or it might be poetry. It might be something that we haven't spoken about for ages, or a tiny tweak might be expanding depth. It might be going to a place with our partner that we maybe haven't explored for long. Like, what are your hopes and dreams? You know, what are you, what are you most scared of right now in the world? Um, what is your greatest wish for when all of this is over? You know, in, if you were talking about a pandemic. So the point that I'm really making here is that our emotions, again, contain these signposts. When we become more granular with our emotions, it helps us to understand what it is that we need. But the other part of it is that values are qualities of action. So if you value connection or if you value support, then one of the things that we need to do is we need to take steps in our lives that move us towards those things. And I often think that this is almost like, you know, when you're riding a bicycle, you only stay upright when you keep on moving in the direction that you want to go. And it's the same with our relationships. It's like, Mm -hmm. what is this emotion signaling? What is it that I need? And then how can I bring myself closer towards that need? And again, I'm using this in the context of relationships, but you could apply this to any aspect of, you know, your career or uh, how you interfacing with your parents or even how you are parenting. You know, what are my emotions telling me? How can I show up to that with compassion and curiosity? What are they signaling about my need? 
And how can I bring myself towards those values in ways that are sustainable and helpful? They can also be applied to your health behaviors. You know, I feel stressed, therefore I just want to watch TV. But what is my stress really? My stress really is that I, you know, need a little bit of self-care. Okay, I just want to watch TV. How can I engage in self-care in a way that is congruent with my value of health. Maybe today I'm not going for a run, I'm going for a walk. You know, it's a different way of engaging with ourselves. I think sometimes we forget or like get so in a role or a mode where our values, we forget what we value or we don't stand in what we value. We get by not, um, and I guess it's sort of a cascade or a conundrum. It's like if you're afraid or don't want to feel certain emotions, then you avoid those emotions, which actually ends up abandoning your value. And you have to abandon your values in order to avoid the feeling. And and of course, you would feel depleted and not centered and lost and anxious and depressed and all the things. And I love that idea that the the sort of beacon home is to is to uh, re-embrace your values and then ask yourself, how do I show up emotionally or in this relationship or in my work or in if I was in my values? Mark, I think what you describe is so profoundly important because I think what happens over time and even what you describe with this, you know, getting lost in social media and so on, like what is it? It's 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 often about an, an emptiness. It's about an emptiness inside, you know, going from, Relationship to relationship is often about an emptiness inside. Um, engaging in other ways of trying to cope are often about the emptiness inside. And no one can, no one can fill us. You know, internal pain always comes out, always. And no one can fill us. So part of the grounding, and, and this is such an important part of my work, is really about this idea of values and what you describe, which is people saying, I've got no idea what I care about. I know what my religion is telling me to care about. I know what my parents told me to care about, but I don't know who I am as a person is something that I talk about in emotional agility. And and there are ways that we can start to really get at this, um, to understand what our values are. The first is but just, again, opening your heart to these difficult emotions and just starting to say, if I'm curious with that difficult emotion, what is it telling me I need? Mm-hmm. So that emotion signpost values. But there are other ways of as well. You know, we can set ourselves at the end of a day, um, what did I do today that was worthwhile? Um, mm-hmm. And here I'm saying, not what did I do today that was fun, not what did I do today that makes me happy? <laughs> because sometimes, you know, you can go to a party and you can, you know, we can do lots of stuff that's fun, but it's not the same as worthwhile. Worthwhile is a very different question. Um, sometimes the most difficult things we do in our lives are worthwhile. Sometimes the difficult conversation, sometimes the difficult piece of work is worthwhile. And so, Asking ourselves, you know, what did I do today that was worthwhile starts to help to ground us in, oh, it was it was that connection that was worthwhile. Oh, it was the the learning my way through this difficult concept that was worthwhile. That starts to signal the stuff that's important to us. And 
the last, or not the last thing, the, there's definitely not the last thing, but another thing that I think <laughs> is really important when we think about values is often people say things like, but what about, what about if my values are in conflict? You know, what if I value work and relationship? What if I value work and home and then conflict? And the way that I think of values is, is slightly different. I actually don't think that our values are in conflict. I think what happens is sometimes some values are more front and center than others. You know, so sometimes you're going through a very difficult time in your life and you might focus on your relationship or you might focus on your work. But I don't think values are in conflict. I think often what's in conflict are our goals. You know, our goals. I, I want to be in this place with you right now, but I also want to be in that place doing that other thing. <laughs> and and part of that is part of that is recognizing again the fragility of the beauty of human beings that that we aren't omnipotent and we aren't omnipresent. And sometimes we make choices and sometimes choices are difficult. And sometimes we need to let go of the pain that comes with not being able to have everything because there mm, is gosh god forbid you know god forbid god forbid right. but yeah i think value and like it's often not values that are in conflict it's often our goals and often we can start saying to ourselves if i value this relationship and i for instance value being immersed in this thing as an example that i'm working on right now how can it not be an either or you know, how can I be committed to this thing that I'm working on, but also signal to you, my partner, that I love you and that I care about you. Um, and, I, and and so the reason I raise that is because I think often people get themselves into a conundrum thinking their values are in conflict and it makes thinking about values difficult. But I don't think it's it's values. I think it's actually about goals and thinking about how we can prioritize and phase and focus on different things at different times. Yeah, it makes me think of that difference between um, uh, compromise and self-abandonment. Like I find if you're compromising in a, any relationship or it could be at work, um, it deepens intimacy. It might not be, you might not be getting exactly what you wanted, but you know that it deepens intimacy and trust and it actually deepens the relationship. It's where self-abandonment, although it gives the illusion of bringing the relationship closer together, it actually brings it further apart and it deepens resentment. So it becomes this delicate dance, which I think we all, we all can, we all know the taste of resentment. It doesn't taste great. Um, but that you have to self-abandon to know what self-abandonment is. You have to do these lines. Like you were saying, this, this dance between values is, is also negotiating that you don't have to have it all at once. As you said, like it can be, prioritizing and learning discernment. And as you said before, too, like having your own back and recognizing, hey, like I might not get that right now, but this is what's going to occur and I'll get that eventually. Or maybe I'm ready to let that go because I get connection or whatever it might be. It's so powerful. You know, as you talk, I, I actually think about my husband. So I've been extremely happily married for 26 years. Oh, wow. And one of the things that my husband is really remarkable at doing is this dance between 
a compromise, but a but not self-abandoning. And the way this shows up, and I just offer this as a practical example, is when we have an, an argument, he's really, really, really incredible with being the person who's able to let go of being right and who's able to just come and give me a hug and say to me, Susie, I love you. You know, I... I love you. I, and, you know, we, we, we make a little joke and, and, you know, he's just absolutely amazing with not being so stuck as we often do with, you know, who's right and who's wrong, but rather asking the more important question, which is, is my action serving me? Is it serving who I want to be in this relationship? But at the same time, like, I know that if there were things that I, asked of him and I don't but that that went against his values he would have absolute clarity in being able to push back against that so it's it is about that discernment and I think part of it is about um holding to this idea of what is the bigger why that the two people in a relationship are aiming at like what is the bigger value what is more important than the in the moment who's the right or the wrong. And then the same question cascades down into you as an individual, which is what is the bigger why here for me? You know, if I let go in my situation right now of whether I'm right or wrong, wronged or right, you know, whether mm. I'm being heard or not heard, whether the dishwasher's loaded or unloaded, you know, if I can let go of that, but I can hold on to what is my why, which is I want to be seen, I want to belong, I want to be a contributor. And if we can be grounded in our why as a human being, it creates such a healthy way of coming to the world. And so it's, it's I always say, you know, internal pain always comes out. And what I yeah. mean by this, I think, I think what I mean by this is that when we don't have a sense of our why, when we don't have a sense of our values, we are constantly going to be swept from relationship to relationship or situation to situation and not knowing who we are in this context. And this is why the hallmark mm -hmm. of emotional agility, the hallmark of being agile is actually being able to be grounded. Because when you're grounded, what you're doing is you are not reacting to everything around you but rather you are being intentional in your responsiveness and mm. it's very difficult to be healthy in a relationship if you can't be healthy in your relationship with yourself and the first part of being healthy with yourself is being compassionate is being kind is being open to your emotions but also starting to say like what is my why what is important to me what is the litmus of whether I'm moving towards what's important or not? Yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, and I think that you might have just answered it, but I was going to ask you like, okay, well, if you're in, you get that feeling, you know, you're, you're assessing where your stress comes from. Maybe it comes from feeling lonely in your relationship and you know you need to initiate a conversation. I find so often people, that's where they stop, right? They have the awareness, and but it's that leap that requires the initiation of the conversation. It's the leap of embracing a feeling you may have never been taught to embrace and to act upon. 
with a, a to sort of mobilize yourself. So, you know, I, I think maybe you just nailed it with that idea of of when when you know what you value, then you can ask: Is having the courageous conversation is not having an alignment with my values? And if it's not, you know. I think that's exactly, you know, it's so interesting when, when you're an emotions researcher, often people, or when you work in the area of emotions, often people say things to you like, so when you're upset with your spouse, should you have it out with them? Should you not have it out with them? And it's like, <laughs> you don't want to keep saying like, it depends, it depends. But actually what it depends on is your values. And what I mean by this is, imagine if fairness is one of your values, okay? And you say to yourself, Oh, should I have the conversation? Should I? And you're like getting yourself into this thing of like, should I? Okay. But if you step back and you say, fairness is really important to me, you can then start saying, how fair is it to my loved one if I don't have this conversation with them? Mm-hmm. Okay? That's a how good fair is it to me if I don't have this conversation? How fair is it to the relationship? If I don't have this conversation, how can I have the conversation in a way that is fair? And then you speaking with your partner and you're saying, I have this need and I'm wondering if you would be willing to have this conversation. And one thing that's really important to me is have this conversation in a way that's fair. What is something that's important to you that we can bring to the way we have this conversation. And and obviously you're not going to do this in every conversation, but there's some conversations that are extraordinarily important um, that we have in our relationships. And what you're seeing you're doing here is instead of coming at it from the you did this and I did that and what should I do here, which is which is not grounded, instead what we are doing is creating a shared why when we have this conversation that's outside of our ego and it's much more in the space of the two of us coming together to have something that's important. Mm, and that seems to be everything. You I know. think it's everything. I think it's everything. I think it's everything in relationships. I think it's everything in, in our work. It's everything in our lives. I, I often think about, um, you know, sometimes what we do is we have these have-to goals. I have to have a conversation. I have to lose weight. I have to be fit, I have to, you know, um, have to goals lead to resentment. They lead to a lack of sustainability. They lead to having an interaction, but that ultimately isn't fulfilling or that um, isn't getting to the nub of what we're trying to get to. A want to goal is a goal that is derived out of our sense of values. In other words, our emotions have signposted the value but we aren't acting out of our emotions. We're acting into our values. Again, our emotions are data, not directives. So what are the directives? The directives are our values. The directives are our values. And so when we're acting into our values, we're coming from the place of wisdom. Because we've all got different parts of ourselves. We've all got the antagonistic, resentful. We all are both the toxic person and the, oh, my goodness, that other person. we all those. We are everyone. <laughs> you know, we are all everyone but we all have the capacity to access the part of ourselves that is wise and capacious and human and beautiful. And we do this by bringing our values front and center. 
Well, I think I speak for everyone. Even if I don't, I'm doing it right now. Uh, <laughs> when I say this has been incredible, uh, you're so passionate about the subject and it, and and just your desire to help people understand that their feelings are their friends, you know, and that and, and not just the friend they don't want around. You know, all of them are welcome and. I'm so grateful for the work that you do and that you came on today to share this with people. So thank you so much. Thank you. I love your voice and your presence. And so it's just been a very, very powerful conversation. Thank you for inviting me to have it with you. Thank you for coming and saying yes. It just means a lot. And uh, everyone listening, go buy Emotional Agility so we can all be better at communicating and make this, I mean, that's ultimately how we heal the world is by yes. changing ourselves and and having these this space within ourselves to have conversations with ourselves that we can then have with other people. It, it, you know, extend that same space of capacity, uh, or sorry, that same space of compassion. When we can do it within, then we don't seek it outside. We can actually provide it too. And what a gift. Thank you so much. Thank you. So where do people find more of you uh, outside of the book, which everyone's going to buy? Yeah, well, I think there's three places. The first is the book. The second is my TED Talk, which is just an introduction to some of uh, my work, which is called The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage. And then the third, which is just a very practical activity that uh, a lot of people have enjoyed is I've got a free quiz on my website and it's very quick. Uh, about 140,000 people have taken it now. And wow. it asks a couple of questions about how you deal with emotions, about your values, and then it gives a free 10-page report. And you can find that on susandavid.com forward slash learn, L-E-A-R-N with a South African accent. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I'll make sure that these links are in the show notes for everyone listening. And Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.